So um, where do you go to find a good spouse? In the Bible, it appears that wells are the place to go, you know? A well, every day, twice a day, they have to go there to get their water. I was trying to think of what the modern equivalent of that is, and, you know, the cliche going to a bar to pick up a girl, that doesn't quite fit because, you know, you don't have to go there at all. So maybe a coffee shop would be better, but some people don't drink coffee. It's probably the grocery store. You have to go there more frequent than any place else, and you can run into neighbors there. Um, but nowadays, things are so different. But in the Bible, the well was central. There's no, you know, in underground plumbing or anything into houses. And in the story of, of today's um, gospel, or, uh, Genesis reading, we've got Isaac uh, in need of a wife and Abraham's servant going to find one for him. And it's at a well that he locates a woman that's suitable to be his wife. But this is not the only time in Scripture this happens. His own son, one of his sons, Jacob, will go back to that same well and find not one but two wives there. And then a little bit later, in Moses' day, Moses will find a wife at a well from um, a woman who's uh, tending her father's sheep. And so this is kind of a repeated pattern. So in the Gospel reading, it's not surprising that when the disciples see Jesus at Jacob's well in Samaria, they're like, what are you doing talking to that woman? Who is she? What's going on here? In their mind, these kind of stories are what lead to marriage. Of course, Jesus wasn't looking for that at all. He was actually calling her into a spiritual relationship with the living God, but that's another story. So Genesis 24 today is a narrative about searching for something and God leading, and it teaches us something about finding God's will in our life. You know, there is no lack of books on how to find God's will. In fact, for the men's retreat coming up in November, I'm going to do some reflections on a book called Just Do Something. I've given out like 20 copies of it to some of you. Um, and what's interesting about that book, the subtitle, it's, it's called Just Do Something, but the subtitle is A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or, and then there's a picture of a drive-in movie screen that's blank, and a guy sitting in an easy chair in the middle of a field with a hat on from behind, or how to make a decision without signs and visions and liver shivers and open and closed doors and words from the Lord. And it has like this whole list of things. All these things that we try to do to figure out, is this God's will? How do I know what God's will is? And there's actually some really helpful teaching on that. And in this chapter, we see a little bit about that. But it's even bigger than that. Chapter 24 of Genesis is more than just making a decision. It's actually about leaving a legacy of faith in the lives of those that will go behind you, that will come behind you in some way. You see, what we learn in the Scripture throughout is that God is a God of the generations. He's not interested in just one generation, but multiple. So consider when he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 20. Now I'm fast-forwarding chronologically from the Genesis days, but he says this about not creating a carved image to worship, not worshiping idols. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, our lives affect those that come behind us, and there's a spiritual residue, if you will, that goes down through the generations. And God's saying, 
if you don't love me, well, then that's going to affect those that come behind. And if you do love me, it'll affect those that come behind. To the thousands. So his blessing is way bigger than any extension of his curse. But we've got a God of the generations. In fact, he will take as his name, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just the God of Abraham. He's the God of the three main patriarchs. And he's, because he's bigger than just one generation. He's this God who is interested in blessing all people through the offspring of Abraham. So he's looking down through history from his vantage point, and he realizes it's far bigger than any one particular generation. That's why um, I am really proud of our church's vision statement. Four words. You know what they are? You drove past them. It's on a sign out by the road. Extending grace, discipling generations. Yes, generations. And this is an intergenerational church. This is a church that is beyond any one particular group. It's not the, the church of Gen Xers or baby boomers or millennials. It'll be after and after and after. You know, our church is probably like 140-something years old. It goes back to Grace Episcopal, where we were for up until 2006 and now here. And I pray that it will go multiple generations beyond all of us, even those of you in the front row. And so um, we're extending grace to the next generation so that they can extend it to the next generation. A couple of years ago, I heard um, a very challenging statement that we should parent our kids as though we're parenting our grandkids. You're not just raising your kids. You're raising your kids in the way that they will raise your grandkids. And so you've got to take a bigger viewpoint of this. That, that was a little bit like, ooh, this isn't just, you know, one and done. My, what I do is going to affect multiple generations. And that's true spiritually as well, even if you're not a parent. How you treat those coming behind you is really important. And here's the big idea this morning that I'm going to drill into in this text. It's that God's promise lives past our part in his story. Or if you put it together, in history, his story. God's promise lives past our part in his story. We get like this much of the story while we're alive, but it's way longer. We're, we're like a part of it, and it's an important part, but his promise is for the generations. It's going way further. That's why when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, and, and he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. And that age has gone on for 2,000 years now in counting, and he's still expecting us to pass the faith on to those that come behind us. I love that about Z leaders. You guys are already learning the habit of bringing up the next group. The Generation Z leaders are reaching down to the next kids that are coming up, and we're building like a scaffolding system for the, for the generations. That's how it should be. So if God's promise lives past our part in his story, the question becomes, how do we live our part well? If you only get this much of the whole timeline, how do you live it well? How do you make it count? So we're going to look at this story from Genesis 24, which is really about living well and passing it on to the next generation and the transition from the first patriarch, Abraham, to the second patriarch, Isaac, and about seeking God's will in that transition. So Abraham is old. Now, the story is long. Chapter 24, it's one narrative. And Micah read a big chunk of it, but certainly not all of it. It's actually 60, I think, 67 verses long, Genesis chapter 24. I really want you to read it all in one setting, the whole story. But we read the end part of it. But if you back up to the beginning, we learn that Abraham is very old now. 
and he knows that his time has come and gone, and he's, and he's trying to set up the next generation for success. He wants to see the promise of God passed on. And so he gets his servant, the chief servant of his household. It might be the guy Eliezer of Damascus, by the way, from back um, in, when he was saying that this guy was going to inherit, and God said, no, you're going to have a son of your own physical body who became Isaac. But anyway, this servant is asked under an oath, to go and find a wife for Isaac. Now, right away, you're like, wait, what? In that culture, they arranged marriages. It's not like our culture at all. And it was part of the job of the parents to help find the spouse for the next generation. But Abraham is too old to travel, so he gets his servant, and he puts him under oath and says, I want you to go all the way back to the land of my household. Don't take one of these Canaanite women for my son. He's not a racist. This is not an ethnic thing. It's a theological thing. He, the Canaanites were polytheistic. They worshipped all kinds of different gods. He didn't want his son yoked to that. So he said, go back to my father's land where they worship Yahweh, the one true God, and find a wife from his household. And he says, well, what if, what if I can't do it and she won't come back with me? I mean, let's be honest, a 500-mile trip, and she's not even going to see what this guy looks like? What if she's like, I don't want to go? Then should I take Isaac with me so she can size him up? No. Abraham is adamant. Do not take him from this land over there, because this is the land that God has promised. This is where my offspring are going to be. So he might get over there and get into some kind of a relationship and get stuck there and not ever get back here. We can't have that. And then he says, and you know what? God's going to send an angel ahead of you, and he's going to help you with this. And if she still refuses to come, then you're free of this oath. But Abraham is convinced that God's word is true, and he's going to carry this out. He's not exactly sure how, but he just knows he will. So if you're that servant, what do you do? Well, first of all, Abraham is very rich. He's got a huge and good reputation. He's very wealthy, and he's going to pass that wealth on to Isaac. And now he's looking for a bride to marry the really rich guy. See, you know, these shows like The Bachelor and stuff, they're terrible. They're terrible. You know, marry for the wrong reasons. But the fact that he's rich is, is helpful because she does need some security. She's going to leave her father's household and go all the way 500 miles and live in this other family. So if you're the servant, what do you do? Well, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to get 10 camels, and I'm going to load them up with gold and silver and precious ornaments and gifts, and I'm going to get a bunch of helpers, and we're going to go in a huge caravan, it's going to t it probably took them 20 days, the better part of a month, to travel all the way over there. They're going to roll into this town, and they're going to sit down by the well. And that's exactly what happens. And they, know, they were noticed, I'm sure. But his plan is, okay, God, I want to find a good wife for my servant's son. And you know what we do? We, we judge on appearances. I want the best-looking girl in town. Wrong. Bad choice. You need more than that. Cute is good, but you need character for this. And Abraham is rich, and he's generous, and he's hospitable. So you're looking for a hospitable, and um, a generous, and a faithful, and a good person, and, and she better be somewhat attractive, or you've really failed. So, but there's lots of women. And so what does he do? He goes to the well, and he prays, okay, God, this is my plan. And this isn't a test of God. This isn't a fleece. This is how he's going to determine if there's character. And he says, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch the women come out to the well, and I'm going to look for one, and I'm going to pick one, and I'm going to say, would you give me a drink? And the woman that says, sure, and I'll also water your camels. There are 10 camels. Let her be the one that is suitable for Isaac. And he's praying this. This is his prayer. 
Now, what's interesting is the narrator is trying to show us something, that you've got your approach to making a decision, but God is also working in the background of your life behind that. So it says in verse 15 uh, of, of Genesis 24, it says, before he had finished speaking that prayer, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So it's like his great niece, I guess, is what you'd call her. She came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known, and she came down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Okay, there's one that looks unmarried and suitable. She's attractive, and, but he doesn't know what family, but he's praying this prayer, and he's got this deal, and she showed up before he was done praying, and he says, hey, could you get me a drink of water? And she says, sure, and I'll water your camels as well. And he's like, okay. But he doesn't just like immediately jump in. It says awkwardly, it says in verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. You know what he was looking for? Did she just pour a little bit of water for one camel and then quit? Is she a quitter? Does she have good work ethic? Is she someone who's truly hospitable? He doesn't get one of the servants and say, hey, grab the jar from her and, and do this. We, we'll use your jar, but you don't have to do it. No, they all stand there like this, just watching her. Inside, I mean, it's kind of awkward. Ten cam- you know how thirsty camels are? Ten camels. Jar, jar. This took a long time. And so she was, and it, and it uses words in here like she quickly, and so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again. She's running, she's quick, she's working hard, she's diligent, she's generous with her time and effort. And when all the camels have been watered, then it says that he took out two bracelets for her arms wearing ten, weighing 10 gold shekels and a, and, a, and a gold ring. And he puts all this jewelry on her. And then he says, now, whose family are you from? And these were just gifts, just generous gifts. He's just showering her with wealth and gratitude because she's taking good care of, of his camels and his guys. And then, is there room in your father's house? You know, what? Whose, whose family are you in? And she says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, in other words, Abraham's brother. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. The Lord has led me on the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And he recognized, he set out to make a decision and he entrusted it to God and God was working way ahead of him and helped him prosper. And so he was full of joy and he worships God. So one of the things we learn about this story that's helpful in your own decision-making process is there is a tension here between your responsibility as a faithful person and God's sovereignty. Human responsibility right next to God's sovereignty. First, on our responsibility, believers must pass God's plan on to the next generation. Abraham knows that his time has come, and God's promise still has parts to be fulfilled. He wants to extend grace to the next generation. He's going to pass it on. The Great Commission is to the end of the age. You know, We have a responsibility to try and pass the gospel to the next generation. And let me say something about this church. You know, in 2014, we raised $315,000 or whatever it was to build the barn as a building for youth because we cared so much about the next generation hearing the gospel. And I think of all the ministries that have been done in that building since that time, how important that is. 
Do you know we don't just have like one person on staff that's charged with all children and youth ministry. We have a bunch. We have Jack, Jennifer, Jordan, Kathy, Barbara, Paige, um, Kristen, and then a whole bunch of other people that work on those teams, some paid, some part-time. We're putting a lot of effort into getting the gospel to the next generation. This is a church that recognizes that we only have a part of the story, but it's for the generations. So God's promise lives past our part in that story. I went over to Lenny um, and Callie this week and drove all the way to World Golf Village to meet in their house for prayer instead of having Lenny drive out here. You know, he's helping us plant a church over there. And we were talking about, you know, how things are going and, and we were wondering about where they could meet and if there was a church they could use on Sunday morning. And he said, well, there's actually a great church. He drove right past it. I said, I saw the building. It looked awesome. And I said, what's, what's the congregation like? And he said, well, they don't have a great reputation in the area. They're all old. There's about 30 of them, and they do a lot of social gospel justice type stuff. They're caring for the poor. 30 older people have a beautiful building, and they're caring for the poor. And I have to be careful because the word old is relative when Lenny's in his 30s. But um, I said, you ought to meet that pastor and be friends with him, and let's pray. Who knows? Maybe that church would get a vision for hosting a church plant and bequeathing the property right into what you guys are doing. Lenny has more kids, more children than adults right now in the church plant, and they're trying to figure out how to manage this. They're trying to hire somebody to do children's work. They care about the next generation. And if we're not careful, we age out, and then the church is just hollow. We have to keep intentionally passing it down. Now, the thing about this, that's our responsibility. But the thing about God, his part of it, is that he blesses us when we are pursuing faithful activities, when we're doing things that align with his kingdom and what he wants to see happen. I'd, I'd fail to exegete this passage well if I didn't point out the word chesed. It's in there several times, and it's the Hebrew word that means loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. Um, it's hard to actually define it, but it's a very important word in the scriptures. And God is being faithful to the promise that he made to the first patriarch, Abraham, and he's making it to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then through his offspring, all peoples will be blessed. God is faithful to his promises, and God's promise lives past our part in the story. So back to the, you can apply this to any decision you have to make, but let's go back to the marriage question for a minute, especially anyone that's not married that would like to be. Sometimes we go to God and say, I want to get married, and we maybe bring a particular person in mind and go, God, there's this person I really like. Is this person the right spouse for me? That might not be the best question. A better question might be to say, what value would this marriage be to your kingdom, God? You see the subtle difference in that? One is seeking first the kingdom of God and bringing personal preferences second. The other is, I've got a preference for this situation, and, and, and is this a good thing? but rather, God, what is your kingdom about, and then how do I, how can I be part of that? How do I seek it first? You know, we can trust that God will help us when we seek first his kingdom, because Jesus said that very thing. Seek first the kingdom, and all that other stuff you need will be added, that all the other people run after. That will all be added. And we can rest assured that God will complete the good work that he's begun. That's a direct quote from the New Testament. He's begun a good work of faith in you, and he will carry it on to completion. That's helpful, by the way, because some of us um, have offspring that aren't walking with the Lord right now, despite our best efforts. And you're in good company if that's you, because Isaac messes things up pretty badly. He has a son. 
Esau, and then a second son, Jacob. And he favors Esau, and he does not favor Jacob, and God's promise was for Jacob, and he knew it, and he didn't care, and he favored Esau and did damage to Jacob. It was a dysfunctional family situation. It's not till the very end of his life when Jacob has deceived him to get his blessing that Isaac finally goes, fine, the blessing goes to you, Jacob. Sorry, Esau, there's no, not a blessing for you. But his entire life, he'd favored the wrong kid. And he favored any kid. That's a bad move. So he's messed up. But God is carrying on to completion the work he's doing. So we entrust it to the Lord. Consider, the narrator wants you to see in Genesis 24 how many things could have gone wrong that didn't. Consider these. The servant could have been less diligent and failed. He could have hung out with the other guys and been like, uh, uh, you know, let's just go on a trip and we'll say we tried and not really tried. But he was steadfast. The sign that he came up with at the well could have been ambiguous. What if two of the girls were walking down together chatting and they went, hey guys, you want some water? Oh, that, that short circuits the whole thing. Or, um, here's my pot, you can use it to water your camels. That doesn't work. Or, water's the first one and then stops. That doesn't work. Or, the brother, um, Laban, could have said, you can't have our sister. We're not sending her. She's, going, she's not going 500 miles. No. Or, she herself might have said, I'm not marrying that guy till I see what he looks like. I don't know anything about this guy, Isaac. I'm not. I, take your gold and stuff. I don't care about that. None of that. Because God was working behind in each one of those things, he was doing something, and he was protecting his promise. And we, we have a part to play, but God's promise actually lives past our part in the story. So important to see. God is providentially caring for faithful people. And so let me close with this. I'm going to go back to that passage of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says to seek first the kingdom. And, I, I'm, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to ask, is there a decision that I need to make? An important decision. Every one of us is making like 50 decisions today, but some are of greater gravity than others. And we're going to ask God about those decisions and how to go about them. But consider this as you, before you do that. This is Jesus speaking about not being anxious. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, King Solomon, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore... Don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Or who shall we marry? Or which college should we go to? Or what car should I buy next? What career should I pursue? Where, where should we live? Which neighborhood? Fill in the blank. All those things. He says, the unfaithful Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's about priorities. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to have, you know, like half a minute, that's a long time, of silence, and I want you to just listen. 30 seconds of silence. I want you to listen and take before you, before God, whatever, you know, decisions are coming up in your life, and ask Him about that. Ask Him what He wants you to do. Ask Him what it looks like for His kingdom to come in that situation. And then ask him for the courage to, to walk the right way. So let's pray. 
Lord, I'm thankful for this story. I'm thankful for all these accounts of your patriarchs and what they teach us. Most of all, Lord, I'm thankful for your loving kindness, your faithfulness to your promises. Even when we're faithless, you are faithful. And so, Lord, I pray that you would now come and speak to your people, that you would give us guidance about decisions that we have to make, that you would give us confidence in your loving provision, and that you would grow us in character. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to us.